Please be seated. I mentioned we're getting a new multimedia system. <laughs> Phil, Moises, Dave, God bless you. God bless you. We are starting a new series on Control-Alt-Delete, Rebooting Your Life. And uh, everyone needs a reboot. You know what a reboot is, right? You see that, that blue screen on your computer, or you see that, that spinning wheel of death if you're a Mac user. And, and you know something is wrong internally in your system. Something's not functioning right. And you just got to start over. Control, Alt, Delete. Hit the power button. Turn off, turn around, go back again. If you did programming in the early 80s, that's how old I am, it was called Gigo, right? Garbage in. Garbage out. Oh, no, 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 no more nerds here? Garbage out. There you go. Thank you very much. Garbage in, garbage out. And we need reboots. And we've been talking about rebooting our lives and talking about areas where we often need that reboot, that start over, the do-over. We've talked about repentance. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about uh, conflict resolution. And today we're talking about our desires. And so I want to ask you uh, this question. Are desires a good thing? Or desires a bad thing. So raise your hand if you think your desires are a good thing. Alright, good. Alright. Raise your hand if you think desires are a bad thing. Good, good. Everyone's correct. You're all right. They're both. And they function both ways. C.S. Lewis had these great words about desire. It's it's a long quote, and it's he's British, so it's a little tricky, so stick with me here. He wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo, or mirage. Here's the key point. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. So what he's saying is this, is that God gives us desires. And there are all types of desires, and they're with us every single day, and we often find they're never quite satisfied. And you'll have those moments when they are. You'll have those moments where everything is just perfect, and it's right, and it's good. You're like, man, it doesn't get any better than this. And it lasts for like 10 whole minutes. 
right? Or maybe an evening, right? And, and you like a night camping and under the stars, a campfire, those are my favorite times. And you get up and you smell like smoke and, 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 you, and, you, and, you, and it's cold, and, and, you know, and it just doesn't last. And, and what C.S. Lewis is saying, one day, it lasts. And you were made for something better, for something perfect, for heaven. And the problem is, until we get there, that we often struggle with desires that are twisted or bent. And that's what our first reading today from Genesis chapter 3 was all about. Adam and Eve live in, wait for it, paradise. When you live in paradise, what else do you need? That's the definition of paradise. It's perfect it's absolutely perfect. And yet Satan twists them around. So they are longing for something that has not been given to them. And they're in paradise. It says this in the text. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Did God really say? And Satan pulls that same trick on us today. God really say? Are you sure? And creates that, that longing using those, those God-given desires for that which God has not given. And Eve turns God to the cosmic killjoy. Right? The guardian of all things fun. I'm here in paradise, but you know what? It's not good enough because I can't eat from that tree. Doesn't God stink? He's no fun. It's kind of like this. You've heard this phrase, this picture. Jesus is coming to look busy. Right? God's like the eternal boss. And you better be busy, and you better be good, and you better be productive, because Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Amen. And so many people in our world have this image that God is like that. That God's the boss. And you better shape up, because he's going to fix you. It's kind of like this. This is what Adam Eve's response is like. Imagine. Imagine you are on a cruise ship. And uh, you get on the ship, and your, your cabin is just perfect. It's very comfortable. It's very nice. You go out, and there's the food, right? And the food is just incredible. It's delicious. It's even healthy. It's fantastic. And then you go out on the deck, and there's this beautiful scenery. You see this beach and this coastline. And out on one side, you go to the other side of the ship, and you see the sunset on the other side of the ship. And you might even call it paradise. Everything is absolutely perfect. And then one of the staff members on the ship 
says to you, did the captain really say you can't go anywhere on the ship? And you say, well, you know, the captain said we could go anywhere on the ship, but we couldn't go where he is in the pilot's place. The, you know, where you steer the ship, we're not allowed to go there. We can't even touch the wheel or we'll die. And the staff member says, you won't surely die. And after all, isn't this your cruise? <coughs> Don't you have the right to go where you want to go? And you say, you know what, you're right, this is my cruise. And I do have the right to go where I want to go. And so you go to the steering wheel and you steer that ship right into the beach. <laughs> Crash the whole thing. That's what Adam and Eve do. And that's what we do every day. We've been guilty of the same thing. The first sin is pride. And the second is desire twisted and bent. And it's so much easier for Satan to twist our desires because we aren't living in paradise anymore. The whole world is broken, and we are broken too, including our desires. And sometimes we want God's good gifts in a good way, and other times we desire what we want when we want it, regardless of God's boundaries. And so God places boundaries on our desires. Because that's what good parents do. Who do you think would be worse parent? A parent that doesn't let their kid do anything. Or a parent that lets their kid do anything. There are no boundaries because the kid runs the house. Which parent's worse? I mean, they're both bad. Don't get me wrong. They're both bad. But guarantee you, the kid that's allowed to do anything he or she wants, as a toddler, as a little preschooler, as a first grader, you know, kids are phenomenal tyrants. <laughs> and that kid's going to have problems when, they, when he or she grows up. Just will. Good parents set good boundaries. And good parents are always struggling to find the right balance between, I'm going to let you do this, but I'm not going to let you do this, you know? That's why I think it's great when, when kids have a mom and a dad, because moms tend to be a little bit more protective, you know, like, well, maybe not, maybe you should be doing that. Dads are like, you know, the jump looks good. Go ahead and take your bike off it. It looks pretty sturdy. <laughs> Wear that helmet, though, and don't tell your mother, right? You need both. But good parents are always struggling for that balance, because that's what good parents do. They set good and appropriate boundaries because they love their kids and they want what's best for them. God does the same for you. Because he loves you. God really loves you. And the cross is, is proof of Jesus' love for you. And the empty tomb is proof of his power in you. And when we rebel, we're, we're against those boundaries, against those guidelines. What we're really saying is, I want to be captain. I want to steer this ship. I don't care what you've given me. And so, there's some things we can do as we, we take those desires and we say, Lord God, I want to use these God-given desires you've given to me and use them to honor you. The first is to be discerning. Be thoughtful. 
you're walking with something, you're like, oh man, and God's Holy Spirit is in you and just saying, slow down, step back, take some time and think. Remember 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't be like that private who gets drafted into the army, goes through boot camp, gets sent off to war, and turns around and tells his commanding officer, Sir, they're shooting at me. And the officer has to say, Yes, son, you are in a war. You're in a battle. If you're going through life and it feels like someone is shooting at you, it's because someone is. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be on guard. Be alert. Every action in our life draws us closer to Jesus or further away. And so be discerning. And second, be accountable. Psalm 19 says this, Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. It is very hard to see your own mistakes and faults. Sometimes. Sometimes it's really easy. But sometimes it's really hard. And so I want to encourage you. Find someone that you trust or a group of people that you trust and give them permission to speak into your life. Allow them to hold you accountable. Make sure that someone is of the same gender as you are. Men for men, women for women. It's safer that way. It's better. But allow someone to speak into your life. So the role the elders at our church play for me. When I was in California, um, had a group of elders there, did the exact same thing. And uh, I got done with this one sermon, and uh, it was a good sermon. People were laughing. They were engaged. I had every eye on me. I mean, I was like, man, I nailed this one. Because let's be honest, they're not all winners, folks, right? But this one was good. And we got church. People were shaking my hand. They're like, oh, pastor, good sermon, good sermon, pastor, good sermon, good sermon. And one of our elders, he walks up to me, shakes my hand, whispers in my ear, less Jason, more Jesus. Gives me a hug and walks away. And I was mad. Like, you're kidding me? I spent hours on this sermon. That was good. What are you talking about? And I stepped back and I thought about the content. And he was absolutely right. That message needed less Jason, it needed more Jesus. And so that week I called him up. I said, You were right. He goes, Oh, thank you. And then from then on out, he'd come up to me and go, Okay, that was good. That was good. Just good amount of Jason, good amount of Jesus. You know, you, you got it for your funny, but you got the message came through loud and clear. You know, and that's important. Whom can you give permission to speak into your life? Who's the right and the privilege to hold you accountable? Something to think about. And third is be focused. Focus, what's really important? If Jesus really has redeemed your life, when I say redeemed your life, what I mean is he bought you back. 
you are his. That's what it means to redeem some or something. If he really has forgiven your sins, if he really has given you a hope for today and a future for tomorrow and every day, if Jesus has given you plans and goals, then what really matters? Everything else is secondary. So be focused. And fourth is this. It's the most important. Be repentant. We're, we're talking about rebooting our desires because this is something every single one of us here needs. You know, some sermons I hit like a, some, a group of people and not another group. This Today I'm hitting everybody. We all need this. We all need a reboot in this area. Because in all of us, in some way or some area or areas, we fall short. And so where do we turn to when our desires get twisted or bent? And pride is our captain instead of Jesus. We turn to Jesus. We turn to the one who said, I came uh, for the sick, not for the healthy. We turn to the one who said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We turn to the one who said to Peter, right after Peter had abandoned him, and Jesus' greatest hour of need, and Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Feed my sheep. Because that's exactly what Jesus does. He forgives he restores and he sends back out in our brokenness, in our bent desires. And he sends you back out and says, now go turn around and help someone else. You've been forgiven. You've been restored. Feed my sheep. So that's what Jesus does. Because Jesus takes you and he me as broken and bent as we are. He says, you are mine. And no one or nothing can ever change that. So you don't have to worry or be afraid. And he sends you back out to be his servant, his disciple, his messenger in a broken and bent world. God awesome. Who does that? Who does that? Who shows grace and trust quite like that? It reminds me of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther had quite a bit to be repentant of. <coughs> But this he got right in the 95 Theses. He wrote this as the very first Theses. He said this, The life of a Christian is a life of a repentance. And when Martin Luther died, uh, they found a small piece of paper in his, his favorite coat. And the paper he had written this, We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars of grace. We are recipients of all God gives. It reminds me of my favorite, one of my favorite Christian artists, Rich Mullins. He wrote this. If I stand 
let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us, may we stand. May we stand in the power of your Holy Spirit. May we stand in such a strong way, Lord, that when we walk into a room, Satan flees. Lord God, may we stand in your strength. And may we be seen in every way as yours. And Lord Jesus, when we fail, when we fall, may we fall into your grace as you bring us back to yourself. Forgiven, redeemed, restored, renewed with purpose to be yours. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, may it guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord, for life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song here. Amen.